Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. Today we are very grateful to be chatting with Reverend Anthony R. Luzvardi, Jesuit, currently studying in Rome. Anthony graduated from the University of Notre Dame with summa cum laude with a practically four-point grade point. He did philosophy in Loyola Chicago, been Boston College for theology, and now he is currently at the Pontifical Athenaeum of St. Anselm in Rome, or what we call San Anselmo, where he's getting a doctorate in dogmatic sacramental theology. Tony has a great story. He is a literary person. He's published many short stories. He has done volunteer work in Africa, in the former Soviet Union in Kazakhstan. He's done inner city work. He's really a very well-rounded person, very bright, very engaging, and we're very happy to have him for Sacred Story Jesuit Podcast. In this first part of my three-part interview, we will talk about his kind of literary and academic background about what drew him to both English and philosophy at Notre Dame for his undergraduate degrees. He's received a number of awards for his short stories. We talk about what inspires his writing and the type of scholarship that he has been doing in terms of philosophy. I also asked him if he had a fiction novel in him. So we're very excited to be chatting with Tony Lusvardi of the Society of Jesus. Tony, thank you very much for joining Sacred Story uh, Jesuit Podcast all the way from Rome. It's about 9.25 here, Saturday morning in Seattle. What time is it for you in Rome? It is about 6.25 p.m. in in Rome, so the evening. I understand you are living at the Jesuit House of Studies called the Bellarmino. I know that well. I heard there was a a Jesuit or there was a recent outbreak of COVID there. Have you had to quarantine? We had one case in the community, and it was, fortunately, the case hit while I was still back in the U.S., and he's better. He got it, I think, coming back from uh, France and had a miserable couple of weeks, but he's a good friend and he's better. And I, of course, then when I got here, had to quarantine, but I thought it was okay because it was like staying in a hotel and getting room service all the time. They brought the food to my room. So You have an impressive academic background. You were undergraduate at Notre Dame in both English and philosophy. How did you get there, and why did these two topics uh, take center stage in your undergraduate education? I come from kind of a Notre Dame family, I guess, in a way. My dad went to law school at Notre Dame, so it was always there as a possibility, sort of a preferred possibility maybe for my dad. But I liked being at the school. I liked it being a Catholic university. It was something where, you know, Catholicism was important to me even in high school, and so I appreciated being at a place where that was the case. And people were nice. I mean, you know, it's hard to undervalue the or overvalue the importance of some of those, you know, just the feel of the place, the fact that it's a beautiful campus, the fact that people were nice when, when I went there. I have always enjoyed reading and had a great English teacher in high school. So I liked English going in to Notre Dame. Where did you go to high school, Tony? 
a little public high school in the suburbs of Minneapolis called St. Anthony Village High School. My graduating class there, I think, was around 80. Even though it was a public high school, it had, had kind of the feel of a, of a private high school in a lot of ways. The thing that I think ties English and philosophy together, maybe you know, looking back on, on them, is they're, you know, they're both dealing with the big questions of you know, life's meaning, and they approach the questions, though, in different ways. You know, English is sort of the narrative, raw material of, of life, people's stories. And then philosophy is thinking about, <laughs> thinking about those things and trying to kind of abstract from, from them in a way. Did, what, did one or the other disciplines, was it your favorite during those undergraduate years at Notre Dame? I would say English. There's okay. sort of more of a creativity, more of a freedom with English. So I thought they were very complementary in the sense that English really helped with uh, self-expression and writing, and philosophy made you be disciplined in that writing too. So it made you sort of, you know, there's a tendency, I'd admit, as an English major, there's a tendency to the sort of BS aspect right. of academic writing. And philosophy forces you to be a little bit more disciplined and to say, is that really true? And is that right. really necessary to say? Right. And so they were complementary, I thought. That's great. You have a good collection of short stories and received a number of, of awards for them. What inspires your writing and what kind of topics do you choose? You know, I was thinking, I can't really come up with a single answer or a single source. A lot of times when I've traveled, something will strike me about the travel and I like writing about the places that I'm in. Some of that may simply be, I tend to keep a little travel journal when I'm traveling, you know, just keep okay. dramatic, but keeping some notes. Handwritten notes or electronic ones? I write now most of the stories and things on the computer, but I do tend to keep handwritten notes when I'm traveling, and that probably gets the juices flowing, so I'm more inclined to write about things that I notice while traveling. But there can be other things, too. A story, for example, that, that I wrote a few years ago, I called it The Name, and it was about giving birth. And mm. the reason that I wrote it was I realized I had never written anything from a woman's perspective before. And there's nothing more unique to women than giving birth. And so it was sort of right. a challenge to me. And I was it was a few years ago. So when a lot of my friends from college and from high schools were starting families, and so they were going through this experience of having their first children, it's an interesting experience. Did you get your raw material for the story by listening to your friend's experience of it, having given birth? Exactly. A number of my female friends, I sat them down and I can think of a time I went to Barnes and Nobles with two of them and I had, you know, a yellow legal pad in front of me and I said, <laughs> tell me about what it's like to give birth. Were you in the Starbucks and Barnes and Nobles? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the co the coffee shop there. Coffee shop. Okay. And it was really interesting. And I, I was very happy with the way that it turned out. Did you let them vet it before you went public with it? I did. They enjoyed it. I think they got a kick out of it too. Afterwards, one of the a Jesuit who read it said, How do you know so much <laughs> about the birthing process? Right. And um, so I talked I took that as a compliment. Um, That's great. That I That's can fool at least another Jesuit. So. <laughs> You've got quite a few short stories. Which one do you go back to and say, I got this one just the way I wanted it? Uh, you know, one that I went back to actually this past Christmas was one I wrote 
a few years ago. This one was kind of based on my time in Regency. For, for those listening in our audience don't know what Regency is, it's the period in a Jesuit formation after philosophy studies and before theology where you're doing real-world work. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and I was on the Rosebud Indian Reservation and working in parishes there. Rosebud is in what state? That's Tony? in South Dakota. South Dakota, so very Central good. South Dakota, South Central South Dakota. And I went back to it now a couple of years ago and really, or having written it a couple of years ago, went back to it this year, really liked reading it again. And nice. I thought, you know, I could, I could sort of feel what it was like being, you know, some of those moments that it was based upon, feel those again, and also sort of feeling like I hit just the right note at the end. And part of that was the editor. I sent it to the North Dakota Review, a little literary journal. Some editors are more active than others. He was really good. He suggested changing just a few things here and there and a new title for it. And you can sort of tell that, you know, when, when some editors like that, they're respectful of the story, they get the story, and they know just the right things to suggest to make it really come out, not to try to change it or to alter it, but to make it, you know, to make it what more it really what it is. Exactly, it is, right? exactly. Did you have the experience I've had of going back and reading something I wrote and I said, did I write that? That's really good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there have been a few stories where I, I, I thought about them afterwards and I thought, well, I don't know. I don't I, I don't know if it really turned out all right. But then, I've, you know, when I've gone back a while later, I've been a little bit more satisfied with them than I thought I was. You need a little distance. Otherwise, sure. you're caught up in the where the commas go and things like that, which... What was the name of that story? It ended up being Auto Not Shipwreck. The name comes because it starts with a car accident. And actually, that was something that happened to me when I was on the reservation in Rosebud. It was the beginning of the winter season. So maybe this time of year, maybe October or so. And I was going home and we were getting freezing rain, which is the worst. And it was just before Christmas as well. So I had all sorts of stuff. I was, it was the busiest time of the year. And I wasn't going very fast because it, the weather was bad, but just felt all of the sudden what I was doing with a steering wheel did not have any impact on where the car was going anymore. <laughs> it's a frightening feeling, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so I went off the road and flipped over and ended up upside down. And so that was the opening scene of the story. And then there's there's a line in there of the, the Jesuits in the story are talking about it. And one says, well, you know, it happened to St. Paul, too. It was a shipwreck, not a car accident, though. So. Very good. OK, so there's spiritual and literary background to the title. It's very good. That story I almost got in trouble uh, with as well, because I tried was trying not to worry my parents at this time. So I didn't tell them that I had had a car accident. And then my mom <laughs> read the story oh. a couple of years later. And she said to me, you know, that opening was very <laughs> realistic. Right. You said, Mom, really Mom, it's just happened. fiction. It's fiction, Mom. <laughs> and I said, yeah, actually, <laughs> Mom, that actually did happen. And she said, oh, I remember that time where you talked about have the community having to shop for a new car. And now it makes sense to me. <laughs> so. That's great. so that's your favorite story, Autonaut Shipwreck. From people that you've been around, what story do you think has generated the most interest from those who read it and why do you think they liked it? 
I wrote that story based on being on the reservation. There was another story that I wrote based on being on the reservation, which was more fictionalized. What was the name of that one? That was Reservation Story. People liked it because they, the, or the, at least, you know, the people that I had showed it to liked it because they could sort of see things that they knew in it themselves, the setting and so forth. And, and you know, people sort of like asking, seeing, you know, what of themselves is maybe in it or things that they recognize how, how those are changed. You know, it's sort of amusing. Sure. Is this sure. really, who is, who is this really kind of thing? So... Do you think you have a fiction, an entire fiction novel in you? And uh, if you did and had the time for it, what do you think it would be about? Or are you even interested in doing a long form uh, fictional story? I am. And, the, you know, the novel gives you, you could, there's more freedom in some ways in the novel than in the short story, which is a more limited form. So you can experiment, explore a little bit more. And I have some notes, even kind of a draft of something that I have in mind once I finish my doctorate, which is kind of an all-consuming thing for this next year. But when I'm done with that, I want to go back to this. Without getting into too much detail, the thing that got me going on it, the sort of plot germ, was the, the story of the prodigal son. Thinking about, it's a very strange story in a lot of ways. And so if you were to fill it out, with some of the characters' motivations. And there are, you know, there are some big absences in that story, like where's the mother? And what possibly made it seem to the father like this was a good idea to give the son all of this money? That, doesn't that seem in, in some right. way like irresponsible parenting? And, and what was the older son's response when the father said, we had to do this? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And what was, what was life like for the older son and the father during that intervening time? I mean, all of us right. imagine, the, imagine the prodigal son out, and you know, we get a few details about that out in the world, in the faraway country. But what was life like then for the older son and the father? And so the thought was fleshing out some of these details and seeing and trying to make it a more a modern kind of story, a more fleshed out story. Segwaying to more recent scholarship writings of yours, you wrote Dignitatis Humanae in the case of Kim Davis, who's now come back in the news in the United States. A county clerk, and she would not let people uh, register for, for gay marriage. Is that correct? Right. She was an evangelical or Pentecostal Christian. After the Supreme Court decision came down legalizing gay marriage, she actually stopped giving, she didn't, she had to sign the marriage licenses. And I think that was what she found uh, most objectionable. And so she stopped giving out marriage licenses entirely to both. Entirely. Uh, yeah, to both uh, gay and uh, and heterosexual couples. What so. was your inspiration for writing on that? What was the, the, the substance of the academic narrative that you put in and the attraction to this specific case? Basically, what I was doing was I was taking the Vatican II document on religious liberty, Dignitatis Humanae, okay. and asking what the implications of this document were for this case that was in the news, you know, obviously with religious liberty concerns. And, and they're getting they're getting a more increasingly concerning in the United States, right? Unfortunately, now. yes. <laughs> uh, the backstory behind it was 
I took a class with Bob Arujo at Loyola, Chicago, when I was there as part of my Jesuit formation philosophy studies. For those who are listening, uh, Robert Arugio was a great Jesuit lawyer, highly esteemed by bishops and people in the Vatican who sadly passed away to cancer a few years ago. Great, great person. And he was just fantastic to the younger Jesuits who were studying there at Loyola. You know, he was a friend to me and some of the other guys there. And the, the reason that we had a class, we had a class in Catholic social teaching, and we were talking to him about some of the things that we felt were actually lacking in our studies. And we had had to do this class called The Social Context, and it was taught by a community organizer who knew nothing about Catholicism. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and so... We felt like, you know, Catholic social teaching is an important thing, and um, we really hadn't learned it. And so Bob said, well, I'll teach a class in the law school on, on that. And it was, we, we went through, you know, Bob's method was primary sources. There's no shortcuts there. You read them, you know, and then you analyze them afterwards and look at secondary sources afterwards. But you have to know the primary sources. And at the end of the, the class for the term paper, you know, we could choose kind of a theme that ran throughout the course. So it was looking at 20th century encyclicals and the Vatican II documents, and I chose conscience. And at the end of that, Bob asked to see me after class, after I turned in the, the paper, and he said, I want to talk to you about your paper I think you said, oh, did I do it wrong? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. So he said, I think what you said is really important, and I think you should look for a place to publish it. You know, and again, this is the sort of person that Bob was, that he was trying to encourage the next generation of Jesuit scholars. He, you know, he cared so much about the society. He cares, cared about the intellectual apostolate. And so I did. So I published that. And then a few years later was in Boston where Bob had moved because he was at that point suffering. He couldn't teach anymore because of the cancer. And some of his former students and colleagues were putting together a book in his honor. And he he did not want the book to be about his scholarship, but he wanted it to be on topics that he cared about. And so for the, the paper for his book, I just took kind of the, the research that I had done or one aspect of the research that I had done for the, his, his original paper and applied it then to a concrete case that was in the news. And unfortunately, he passed away before we, before the book was published. But uh, I was there, I was, you know, I was, it, it was fortunate to study for those couple of years in Boston because I was there and did get to spend some time with him as he was dying. And I was there Actually, the, the night that he died, um, there were a few guys from Boston College who came over and prayed the rosary there with him okay. as he was dying. Um, okay. We're I, talking with uh, Anthony Luzvardi of the Society of Jesus, who is studying in Rome. We are going to come back for the second part of our podcast, Sacred Story Institute Jesuit podcast. We're going to talk to Tony about pastoral ministry, mission, and his volunteer work. So we'll be right back. In 
this second part of my interview with Father Anthony Lasvardi, a Jesuit who is studying at St. Anselm's in Rome, San Anselmo. He has a very long history of pastoral and mission and volunteer work, and we talk about inner city programs in the Midwest, Peace Corps teaching in Kazakhstan, work at St. John's University in East Africa, going to Cologne, Germany for World Youth Day. We also talk about some of his highlights since he has entered the Society of Jesus. So we're very happy again to be welcoming back Tony Luzvardi. Tony, again, thank you for being with us. You have a quite a long history, not only in academics and, and English and short stories, but a long history of pastoral mission and volunteer work beginning after your undergraduate years at Notre Dame. Speak a bit about some of your experiences at the St. Paul summer camp and your time with the Peace Corps teaching in Kazakhstan. Did you speak Kazakh? <laughs> I learned very little Kazakh, but I did learn more Russian. So, okay, uh, very good. I, although it's pretty rusty now. But, the, you know, the summer camp, thats it's been a while actually since I've thought about that. That was something that I did during a summer while I was at Notre Dame. And it was kind of a Notre Dame-sponsored internship. And it was fun because it was an urban summer day camp. Most of the kids were immigrants from different, you know, elementary school kids who were immigrants from different places. So you had Somalis and Ethiopians. Boy, some of those boys were not terribly well behaved, but they liked me. So I could kind of get them disciplined in uh, (laughs) in a way. And Jewish refugees or from Russia, um, Uh the former Soviet Union. And a couple that stand out, actually, were these, I think they were Guatemalan kids, Elvis and Cruz. And, <laughs> That's great. Uh, they weren't Sounds twins. like a movie. Yes. <laughs> they weren't twins, but they were maybe only a year or so apart in age, and so they looked like twins. And they always, we, we went on a number of different field trips and things, and they were the sort of kids, they were good kids, and I liked them, and they liked me, but they always pushed to see how far they could go. They were fun. And, they were fun kids then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, most of the time. <laughs> now, the the scene that stands out for me is one of the field trips that we went on was to a museum, and it was kind of one of these modern art museums. So the art is very conceptual. So so they were not behaving well at this. They were not. They were going too close to the to the exhibits and kind of trying to run away <laughs> and things like that. And they knew they had gone before too far when one of the big exhibits was this car, and I think it was made of clay or something. But Elvis reaches out and he grabs the handle of the car and it comes off. Oh dear! And both he and Cruz at that point look at me, their eyes are become, you know, saucers. Right. And they look at me with this horror because they right. know they have crossed the line. Crossed the and, line. <laughs> and I, short, sounds like a short story to me. <laughs> Elvis could be. I, have, I haven't written that one up, but this could be. So I grabbed the handle and just shoved it back on the car as hard as I could and it stuck. And I grabbed both their hands and I said, you're not leaving my side for the rest of the, uh, for the rest of this time. That's great. You also yeah. worked at St. John's University and were director of their East Africa program. So you go from inner city U.S. to Kazakhstan to East Africa and World Youth Day. 
Did you get to travel to either Africa or Germany uh, in your work, Cologne, Germany, for World Youth Day or Africa for the East Africa program at St. John's? Yeah, both of those. And that was the year before I entered the Jesuits. And the East Africa thing was they, they had planned a program to go to East Africa. And at the last minute, the faculty member who was supposed to go with was not able to. And so the vice president for whatever it was, who student activities that it fell under, started calling people. And he knew that I had been in the Peace Corps in in Kazakhstan. And so he said, would you like to, he called me and he said, would you like to go to East Africa? And I said, yeah. And he said, great, tomorrow. (laughs) And I said, what? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I did end up going and accompanying the group then. And then I kind of led the group the next year. So it was a summer program there. And nice. very rewarding, very interesting and rewarding to see Kenya, Uganda, especially Uganda. Wonderful people uh, in Uganda, the warmest people in the world, I think. Wow. Since entrance to the Jesuits, you entered in 2006, you've had many adventures. What would you consider the highlight of your apostolic work since you've entered pre-ordination, post-ordination? If you had to pick one thing out as kind of this was, this was something that will be with me for the remainder of my days. I I would say there's actually a continuity there because Regency, which is what we had talked about earlier, so the Jesuit period of work as a part of our formation, when I was on Rosebud, the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota, you know, I was there for three years working in parishes, got to see every aspect of parish life there. It It was really challenging, felt like we made some good progress in terms of the health of the parish and the life of the parish and getting some of the sacramental preparation programs in particular going and, you know, seeing... You were able to significantly increase mass attendance too, which is quite a, quite a tribute. Yeah, I was very proud of the, you know, the approach that we took there. And you see the difference that the gospel makes in people's lives. I mean, it's really mission territory there. And I can remember reading, for example, reading Lazarus story with a woman there whose kids were going through RCIA. And I, at the end of it, I could tell she was getting kind of tears in her eyes as I was reading it. And I said, uh, you know, have, this is kind of a well-known story. And she's, and I said, have you, have you heard it before? And she said, no, this is the first time I have heard this. Wow. And then she sort of paused and she said, boy, this really changes the way you look at things, doesn't it? And it was like, wow, you know, this is the gospel being announced to someone for the first time. And what a privilege that is to have this apostolic moment where you... Where like a fo- in- foundational missionary experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that was, it was deeply moving for me. And I've gone back to South Dakota. I've tried every, uh, uh, to get back once a year or so. And after I was ordained for uh, a summer of priestly work, because I was knew I was coming back to Rome to continue with the studies, uh, where you don't get as much, obviously, sacramental ministry as a part of that. So sure. I went to uh, St. Isaac Jogues Parish in Rapid City, which is kind of the unofficial Lakota parish in the city. Um, so it's not on a reservation, but there are okay. ties to the, the various Lakota reservations there. And I've gone back there every summer since. So I've that's sort of become my uh, my summer home, I say, and gets me, you know, it's given me a chance to get to know the people there and I've made some really wonderful friends. Beautiful. And I get to, you know, 
get to celebrate the sacraments, which especially after this COVID lockdown for several months where I wasn't able to do any pastoral ministry, it was really moving for me to be able to go back there and to be able to celebrate mass and confessions. I was celebrating mass here in the house, of course, but not with a real con- not with, with a, a real congregation, congregation. Right. Yeah, exactly. with real people. Right. Exactly. That's what I told them. I said right. it's good to have real people, not just Jesuits. And right. So. Exactly. Exactly. What What? Uh, let's end this session here. Uh, the second part of our conversation on the experience or multiple experiences that confirmed you in a vocation to religious life in the Society of Jesus? Was there like an event? Was it a kind of gradual awakening or something you've always known? What would you say about that? About that? There have been various, I, I, there's not one dramatic event, but I would say several, you know, many different events along the way. You know, certainly the experience of doing the exercises every year, doing an eight-day retreat, is very important, I think, for a Jesuit, certainly for me in particular. In addition to those pastoral kind of things, you know, I really do feel like when I was ordained and then celebrating Mass, that this is what I'm meant to be, when, where I'm meant to be, what I'm meant to, what I'm meant to be, what I'm meant to be doing. Even more so than, you know, you're a transitional deacon for a year before you were ordained a priest, and I was always, I always felt a little bit nervous, like I was doing the wrong thing as, you know, when I was working as a transitional deacon, like I wasn't quite sure. And then when I was ordained a priest, I really felt more like, no, this is, this is it. This, this is, is it. not transitional right. anymore. This is what I'm called to be. And so that was very confirming. Some, you know, moments in community as well. The community that I lived in in Boston, really a wonderful group of Jesuits from all over the world. It, it was a loss leaving Regency, leaving Rosebud and going back to academia. And the support that I got from my brothers at that time was really a confirmation as well um, nice. of life in the society. Nice. We're talking with Anthony Lizvardi of the Society of Jesus. Uh, we're going to come back for part three of our conversation where we'll talk about sacraments, Eucharist, and other things. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast, where we are chatting with Father Tony Lizvardi in Rome at San Anselmo. And in this last and third part of our chat with him, our conversation, I ask him to look at the challenges for people today in forming their conscience. Tony is also doing his uh, doctoral work in sacramental theology, and we talk about the Eucharist and how it has transformed in terms of the understanding of average Catholics, let's say from the 1970s when I entered to the current time where he is working and about where he sees his academic work taking him in the future. And he closes off with a very nice prayer. So here is part three of my interview with Father Anthony R. Luzvardi of the Society of Jesus. We're back with Anthony Luzvardi, Tony of the Society of Jesus, who's talking with us today from Rome at one of our communities there called the Bellarmino. Tony, you've written on the topic of the law of conscience. What is that to people who don't know? Now, that was the paper that I did for Baba Rujo's class. And so basically, my argument was there's a tendency in 
theology in the 20th century to say, well, the conscience and law and obeying the law are two opposite things. That if I'm following my conscience, it means I'm sort of creating my values, I'm creating my own law. And what I realized reading the papal teaching and the teaching of Vatican II is that the Catholic Church's way of understanding conscience depends upon the natural law. Vatican II says man looks within himself and he finds a law that he did not put there himself. And so our conscience and the dignity of conscience is being able to appropriate God's law in our own life and in our own being. And so that was kind of the argument that I that I made through that paper, which I think is an important one, that the two are not in contradiction. Yeah, which would be probably highly disputed in academic circles today, that there is any type of objective, interior, orienting, moral truth in the heart of each person. Right. I think, I mean, there's sort of, Nietzsche is in some ways the father of the modern way of looking at things, which is I create my own set of values and my own truth out of my will. And that, I think, leads to emptiness. And it's not, it's not true. I think that there, there is a, uh, we're put here with purpose and we're created with a purpose that is greater than ourselves. I mean, the, the sad thing about the Nietzschean way of looking at the world is you never get to anything that's bigger than yourself. You're limited to your own creation. And, um, and God's creation is a lot bigger and better than our own creation. So Yeah, I think one of the modern and current issues that where this separation between kind of like the law of the land and the law of conscience was it's in the hearings for Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court. And it was a comment that Senator Dianne Feinstein gave her in 2017 when she was up for her first judgeship where she said, basically, when one reads your writings, there's a difference between religion and law and dogma and law. But when one reads your writings, professor, she said, the sense is that the dogma lives loudly in you. Mm-hmm. as like somehow her religious dogma or her own conscience was going to be some type of prohibitive experience for her to be able to be an effective or a fair-minded judge. Right. And the irony or the hypocrisy of it is that secular values are live loudly within other people. Exactly. And secular <laughs> ideologies live loudly with within other people who don't even who don't make any effort then to say is this a personal belief is this what the law says is this part of where where is this coming from um you know the advantage of having dogma to use the right. <laughs> senator feinstein's word is that it's explicit and so we it can be discussed it can be subjected to rational critique and analysis whereas i think a lot of the uh, secular presuppositions or the ideological presuppositions of people who don't have in explicit religion may be just as strong and maybe utterly irrational, but because they aren't explicit, they, they take them for granted and um, right. and don't subject them to the same kind of explicit critique or analysis. So there, there's religious dogma, but then there's secular dogma, which, as you said, shouts loudly in many people. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, I mean, and you know, you know, from uh, this the standpoint of a Catholic, 
I am very proud of Amy Coney Barrett seeing her up there and think that it's you like know, she's a fellow Notre Dame grad with you. She right? is. Yeah. Go Irish. And <laughs> I mean, what a talented woman being able to handle all those questions with much more patience than I would have had. Grace <laughs> uh, under fire. Grace ex- exactly. Under fire. That yeah. um, that really I'm happy to say she's she's one of ours. <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. I want to switch to uh, from conscience to Eucharist. Mm-hmm. I entered the Jesuits in the 70s, and I entered to be a missionary. I wasn't even thinking about being a priest or celebrating Mass. But the kind of the zeitgeist in the, in the 70s, the Eucharist was mostly focused on community assembled. It was very deconstructed. You know, all of the bells and whistles had gone. It was very simple. In fact, I was even ordained with the vestment colors for our ordination class were orange and brown, which had <laughs> nothing to do with anything. Maybe they were some kind of eco, early eco experience. Halloween. Or something like that. <laughs> Halloween, exactly, exactly. So mostly focused on the community and less on the person of Christ or the mass as a sacrifice, which kind of came back into focus for me when I was doing my work at Georgetown. You've written on the mass as sacrifice. How would you describe the importance of the Eucharist to young people today? What is going to capture their imagination in terms of what is this pivotal event in cosmic history that you can attend on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. In some ways, I would say, if you have to explain it, there's already a problem. There a problem there. Now, there certainly there certainly does have to be theological explanation and education. But one of the things I realized working on Rosebud is w- working with people who were not brought up Catholic, just plopping them into Mass for the first time it's a very confusing experience. They don't know what's happening there. And so what this made me realize is there's a whole formation that needs to happen leading into the Eucharist, leading into Mass in particular. I think one of the things that we have to start rethinking about, rediscovering the importance of, not just for young people, for all of us in the church in general, and one of the, the very good things, underappreciated things to come out of Vatican II was the reintroduction of the right of Christian initiation for adults. What we call uh, RCIA. RCIA, exactly. And the idea there is we have to be formed into people who participate in the Eucharist. There are so many sort of layers of meaning and layers of symbolism. And, you know, you think of all the biblical references that take place in Mass and mm-hmm. so I think Old the, and New Testament. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so there's there's a layering of it. And to to really get what happens in the Eucharist, it can't be reductive. And that's that would be my criticism of the nineteen seventies theology that you're talking about, is it reduces the Eucharist to one aspect of the Eucharist. Yeah, there's a communal dimension. There's a celebratory community meal that is one aspect of the Eucharist. But that's not all that the Eucharist is. It's also the passion and death of Jesus. It's also participation in the resurrection of Jesus. It's also looking forward to his second coming. It's also a participation in the heavenly banquet. So there are all these dimensions that it trans- are... transcends time and space. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The key, I think, is not losing any of those because 
Otherwise, it becomes something that that can be reduced to something else or something, you know, that can be found elsewhere. I'm thinking about, you know, the community banquet sort of idea. And I, I always said, well, if that's all that the Eucharist is, if it's only a community meal, then why not just skip mass and go out to brunch? Because that's exactly. a real community. A, a, a good Italian restaurant in Rome. There are many of them. <laughs> exactly. So why would I choose a symbol of a community meal when I can have a real community meal? Exactly. <laughs> You're doing a doctorate at the Pontifical Athenaeum of St. Anselm in Rome. Is yes. your doctorate focused on Eucharist and sacraments? What is the program and what's the practical application you see on the back end when you finish? It is the sacramental uh, doctrine in sacramental theology and Santa Anselmo is uh, it's run by the Benedictines and it is the place in Rome that specializes in sacramental theology and uh, liturgy. Benedictines and, are good good persons to go to for the liturgy. They are. And I've been very happy there. People that yes. have treated me very nice. Uh, I, I'm writing about uh, baptism and my nice. topic in particular is baptism of desire. So what happens, for example, when a catechumen dies before they so are Explain back. to what a catechumen is somebody who is in the process in the RCIA program but has not completed the process, and so therefore they're not baptized and confirmed. Right. And right now I'm in that stage of the doctorate where, you know, you sort of miss the forest for the trees. I'm not just uh, examining trees. I'm looking at bark and uh, and leaves and things. So Right. And lichens, uh, lichens and moss. Yeah, and... <laughs> exactly. So, so, so I won't go into it too much, but the basic idea is it's the, the faith of the church and has been from the very beginning that baptism is necessary for salvation. But there are some hard cases like, you know, somebody who's preparing for baptism who dies, unfortunately, beforehand. And so what does that mean for their salvation, the necessity of the sacraments? Sure. Um, and the way that the church has traditionally uh, spoken about this is the call, to call it baptism of desire. So that can be a future podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we'll, we'll do one, I promise. Uh, I'd like to end, I always like to ask Jesuits about their spiritual life. What was the most important, powerful, whatever word you want to use, religious, spiritual experience of your life? How has it kind of shaped you? Is it something that's carrying you forward? Is it shaping your imagination? I would not say one single event, but I would say the repetition of the spiritual exercises, not just the 30 days, but I found, well, at the end of the 30 days, I thought, now I've actually learned how to pray. Now I'm ready to do the 30-day retreat. Good prep for a 30-day retreat. Right? <laughs> yeah. But then repeating it every year in the eight-day retreat. And it's like seeing Jesus anew every year um, in a way that you hadn't, you know, you're like you learn. I didn't know that about you. Uh, sure. um, you learn something new about him every year. And then certainly the experience of, and this, I, you know, the, the event of ordination, but then following through with that of saying Mass, um, that was a time when a lot of things came together, you know, just the, the people there from my life, from all, many different aspects of my life up to that point, being able to bless them, you know, as a priest, and they come to you for, for their, for, to ask for a blessing, and sure. being able to, to preside at Mass and give them communion, and just that experience of distributing communion to them. Like I said earlier, it was this feeling of, I am who I'm meant to be now. And that's, well, again, something that's renewed then in the celebration of the Eucharist and the celebration of the sacrament. 
Father Anthony Lizvardi, SJ, since you've been talking about blessings, would you end our podcast with a blessing for people who are listening? May the Lord be with you. May he bless you on this day. May you take something helpful for your spiritual life from this time. And may you always grow closer and deeper in knowledge of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.